0: The Power For Good Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Ray Almeida, entrepreneur, environmental advocate, somatic healer, life coach, and really just a grateful part of this beautiful planet. I'm also a former alcoholic and addict, and I'm here to ask some really hard questions while diving deep and discovering how influential people are using their power for good or not. What happens when someone goes through an awakening? Can people really change how and why let's explore. Hello loves and welcome back to the power for good podcast, a space where we connect with influential people who are using their power for good. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Margarita Lopez. Margarita Lopez is a licensed mental health counselor and a certified clinical trauma professional. As the founder of National Therapeutic Alliance, her mission is to guide trauma survivors through a healing journey to a fulfilling life, restoring their self-identity. With over 10 years of experience, Margarita has helped an array of clients from children to geriatrics, from couples to inmates to first responders. Margarita aims to make her clients feel seen, heard, understood. Being able to help them heal and thrive is what it's all about for her. She believes we are more than our mental illness. She's a helper, a rescuer, a restorer. Today, we cover some big questions around trauma, but we also dive into Margarita's story around trauma and how she healed, and then set off on a mission to bring safety to others. In this episode, we also dive into self-love, restorative psychology, reclaiming your self-identity, and how to heal trauma, and so much more. Let's dive in. Hello, loves, and welcome back to the Power for Good podcast. So excited to be here with you today and to welcome a very special guest, Margarita Lopez. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Christina. How are you?
0: I'm doing really good today. Yeah, it's been a really beautiful day. How's your morning? How's your day?
1: Well, I mean, my day got started pretty early. So I've been up since around six forty five. And it's what now I love eleven. It. And shipping kids off to school. You know, it's just that hustle in the morning. But now yes. we're we're pretty zen right now.
0: So Margarita and I met at an amazing women's event called Confluence Circles. And it's this really powerful event where where women come together and basically are supporting each other and empowering each other. It was pretty cool. And um, I'm excited to have you and welcome you to this space.
1: Yeah, it was my first time at that circle. I mean, I, I want to go back. We shared a lot and I think we connected. And then at the same time, it was relaxing. There was a lot of different good vibes at the same time.
0: Yeah. Definitely. So I want to jump in and ask you a question that I ask everyone on this podcast, which is how are you using your power for good?
1: I guess we'll start with what is the, my power, um, I would say. And I I really equate that to when I came to the know of what my calling and what my purpose and mission were. And so I sum it up with um, a term that I now call restorative psychology. But in regular terms, it just means that I help people put the pieces back together. And so a long time ago, when I was in my teens, it feels like forever, I recognized that I was very good at conflict resolution, that I was good at, I guess, restoring the peace or kind of putting things in order. And in addition to that, I was able to, you know, go through adversity, put the pieces back together and still move forward and have what's called post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. So I was able to have post-traumatic growth. And back then when I was, you know, back in 19 something, 2000s, you know, that's not, wasn't even a term. That's something we know now. And so when I recognize that, especially as, you know, throughout my career as a therapist, and as I started to niche into trauma, I realized that that's where the, the power is. That's what I do. I did it for myself and now I do it for others. And so I help people put the pieces back together and, you know, I get hope back for them or with them, and they can now live a fulfilled life. You know, we're more than the trauma that has occurred to us. We're more than the things that have occurred to us. And I want everyone to know that they can live life past and beyond their traumas. So that's a little bit of how I use the power.
0: I love that. Such a beautiful mission. So trauma is a really big word now. And I wonder, what is your definition of trauma? How do you define that?
1: So I was watching, um, I watch podcasts and uh, different videos and audios I listened to. I forget the name of the person that was speaking, but this really resonated with me. He was mentioning trauma as a wound and then he went off and described it. But ever since I heard that, I've really applied that and I studied it even with the clients I've had. Not everyone per se has, you know, a PTSD diagnosis, right? Not everyone necessarily is suffering from all the symptoms that come with that. But a lot of folks, a lot of us have had some level of a wound and it's not just a wound that's temporary, but it's a wound that we carry with ourselves. And it carries into sometimes our relationships or our businesses, our friendships, everything. And that's what I really see trauma as. It's anything that has marked you, That you really, at least when the people, you know, the clients that come to me, you know, something you haven't been able to move forward from that you kind of carry in this book bag that I I tell people, we all have a little book that we carry around. And in that book bag, you know, you either have um, unfinished business, or you have achievements, you know, it's kind of like your portfolio. And In this book bag, a lot of times we're carrying that unfinished business, that wound, like that's where trauma work starts. It's like, let's unpack the book bag and let's see what's in it. What's holding you down? What's really like a pound of rocks in there and what's light and airy and helping you fly? That's kind of like how I see trauma outside of the pathological clinical way, which obviously does exist. But I think when I describe it that way, a lot of folks can kind of look at it and say, oh crap, you know, (laughs) it's been years and I really do still get bugged by this. I wonder what that was and and how I can heal that.
0: Yeah. And I feel like it's a more recent development really that people come to the understanding that trauma, as you said, it isn't just for like war veterans, you know, as this very severe PTSD, but there's like the big T trauma and little T trauma, or, you know, many of us have experienced these these feelings and this trauma. And as you said, this, this bag that we sort of carry around with us. What are some signs um, that you think um, people could have to know that maybe they're carrying around this bag and this trauma with them?
1: So we'll use romantic relationships as the example. I just think it's so common and it's easily seen there, at least for me. So a lot of us will take childhood wounds, right? We'll take that. A lot of us, um, even if we grade up, Grew up in a fantastic home. Um, there's always something kind of lingers, or maybe something we felt we didn't receive, or if we go a little deeper, some of us do have abandonment issues, or we weren't in the best environments. We now, you know, step into pre-adulthood or adulthood, and we're in these romantic relationships, and our partners are now triggering us, or as we would say, okay, that bothers me, or that triggers me. A lot of the times, it's not them that is doing anything to you; it's your own wound that is showing up. Oh, when they do this, uh, you know, you're doing this. So I feel that way. And it's like, wait, let's take a look. Because sometimes, yeah, for sure. Sometimes we don't have the right partner and people are not doing right by us. But a big majority of the time, it's the revelation of the wound that we have. So let's say he doesn't call me enough or she doesn't call me enough or I need to be connecting every two hours or whatever that is. And we often, let's say, we'll put it on that person as like, oh, they don't care right? or they don't love me because they're not checking in on me well, let's look at why you need that reinforcement. Let's look at why you're looking for security or identifying security as a two hour, every you know, on the hour, every two hour check-in. And that may not even be the, rep- that has nothing to do with your partner. Your partner may just be busy. They're working. I don't know. And that's it. Yeah. That's a, like one that I've seen a lot in childhood trauma and unfinished business. And, and then the idea is, for us to focus on why is that um, wound, that pothole, hole, you know, there for you and then heal that so that we can, you know, bring ourselves even in a more healthy way into the relationships.
0: What do you recommend for, for someone as a first step that might be feeling, you know, some of these things?
1: I think the first step to everything is awareness. So a lot of us, you know, we're on the, the next thing, right? We do one thing, we go to the next thing, we're just go, go, go awareness of your body, your thoughts. It's really important. That uncomfortable feeling sometimes we get, like things are just not right and we don't know what that is. And we may be doing the things we love to do, but it just doesn't feel right. That is what we need to pay attention to. Like, where am I? Who's around me? What are my days looking like? You know, that could be leading up to this feeling of uncomfortability. And often uncomfortability is change or even trauma, you know, knocking on your door. You know, it's that trigger hey, I'm here. It's an indicator. Of course, change could be great. But if we're noticing that it's also tapping into our emotional sense, like we're feeling lower than usual, we're not really like, you know, content or looking forward to things. Now we're going backwards and we're going lower, then that's another trigger or another indicator that you can look for. Once we start noticing that that becomes a pattern, that it's not just the moment, because of course we all have bad days. So if this becomes a pattern, it happens all the time. It happens three times a week. It happens whenever I'm here or whenever I'm with this person. Then now we have evidence that we need to kind of you know comb through.
0: Awareness is, I think, always the first step.
1: It is. And I mean, a lot of us, I've been in that boat, you know, we're not even, we're not paying attention because we have so many other things to do. So we just kind of brush things off.
0: Come back to the body. Pause. Pay attention. Listen.
1: Even if you're feeling more tired than usual, like why? You know, it could be exhaustion. It doesn't have to be anything major, but some of us have been feeling this way for years. After a while, what we didn't pay attention to has now become the norm. It wasn't the norm at one point. But now over time it has, and we don't realize it. now we've adopted that as part of our personality or identity. It was never meant to be there. It was meant to tell you there was a problem. A lot of us are very resilient. So we just add the pound of rocks onto our book bag. I guess, you know, when you think of perseverance, not a problem, right? If you're in a state of survival because you need to survive, okay, great. That's why it's there. But we cannot remain in that heaviness, in that fight or flight,
0: and Can it'll hurt us. that state a little bit? Someone that might not understand what's that state, the fight or flight state?
1: Sure. So fight or flight, freeze or fawn, in just basic terms, it's our survival instinct. When we're met with something that causes us fear or danger, we are meant to either flee, to fight it, you know, we're going to respond. And so when we put that into trauma terms or emotional terms, let's say you were in a toxic, abusive relationship, whether it was parents, romantic, doesn't matter, you may have felt trapped at some point. Or you can't get away. Let's say you're 15, you can't get away. You have nowhere to go. Or you're, you know, a woman, just to say that example, and you can't leave this relationship right now. It doesn't make sense. You can't get out. You fear for your life. You're trapped. So now you either, you know, survive or you run risks, major risks. When we are in fight or flight, we're always on alert. What's next? What are they going to do? I got to take cover, right? Well, am I going to get hurt? Am I going to get kicked out? And so when we live in this state, even times when we've already left the relationship or we've left the home that we were in, we still operate on this hypervigilance. Like we're always paying attention. We're paying attention way too much and we're more defensive than usual. And we kind of have this guard up that says, don't get too close, you know, because because you might hurt me, right? So I need to like, you know, stay over here at a distance and our mindset will look like you're out to get me, right? We're, we're thinking someone's coming in to give us an apple here. You know, I have an apple. Would you like it? Why would you give me that? I don't know why you would want to do that for me. Sometimes, again, we've done, we've gone through things in our childhood. We've more than left that, but we still stay in this state of, I don't trust anyone. It's out of the norm, out of the norm of caution for strangers. And um, and yeah, it, it'll, it'll cause you to have, you'll, you'll usually have very few, if none really good relationships. You can't form bonds and it'll trickle into like, you're not even someone would trust because you're so distrusting of everyone, you can't create environments that are safe. And in reality, you don't know what that looks like, right? I kind of ran with that. And that's a little bit yeah. of scenario.
0: I think it's really interesting to sort of digest that. And I've thought about myself. You know, I had experienced trauma when I was younger and I didn't realize that I was in this fight or flight mode. And we can be in, in in different parts of it too, right? So sometimes moving into more of the flight that reaction, and then the fawn. I think the fawn is an interesting one to to discuss as well because it's more of a people pleasing, right? It's it's about sort of uh, like pacifying the, the situation,
1: right? Like keeping the
0: peace. Yes, keeping the peace, which I think that was me as well. For sometimes, sometimes I would run, sometimes I would stay. When I was drunk, I would definitely fight. That was another side of me that came out, but that was, you know, my sober self was not the fighter. So I think we can have different survival instincts too. It's not like we're one of them all the time.
1: Of course, and and substances will alter that state, right? So like you mentioned, alcohol, right? It'll disinhibit us and it gives us that, they call that liquid courage. And oftentimes, like you mentioned fighting, you know, alcohol can make us angry or it brings out the anger that we're harvesting on the inside from all these things that have occurred. And so now we fight that off. And if we cross the wrong person or they say the wrong thing, you know, and all of a sudden that erupts like a volcano. And now we're in this other state where sometimes even with anger, I talk to my clients about this all the time, especially if they do have anger issues with or without substances. It's about not letting, not not scratching that itch to where you're, if you do it, it erupts and now you're just blindsided by it. And now your, your response state really changed. Now you're way confrontational. Now you seriously hurt people, you know, when you black out like that into that other state of fighting back. I want to just touch
0: on PTSD really quick. When mm-hmm. I was... In rehab, I was finally diagnosed with PTSD and it was very surprising to me. I had been to many doctors before and this was the first I was, you know, hearing of this, the fact that I could actually have PTSD. And it was really interesting to me because before that I had thought it was really something that was, you know, as we said before, like for war veterans or people who had literally right. been to like war. And so it was a really powerful realization for me because I realized it had been manifesting for me through my addiction and through a variety of other ways through self-harm. And I wanted to just touch on that and, and see how do you really define PTSD and what advice do you have for someone that might be struggling with episodes with maybe violence or for me, it was really like through self-harm.
1: Well, defining the PTSD would be the definition through the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual we'll save everyone the criteria of all those many words. But um there's a lot of factors that we need to be aware of and we can work on. So a lot of the overt symptoms, kind of like flashbacks, are common. And the hypervigilance state, for example, avoiding uh, places in which remind you of the trauma or where trauma was caused. Uh, well, p- places or people or situations, there's a lot of different things that need to be outlined first. But I think to answer your question, the one thing I want to make sure we start with is with regulating the nervous system, especially if someone Mm -hmm. fully meets criteria for PTSD and we have all these things happening, you know, the mood dysregulation, the flashbacks, all these things I've mentioned, it's coming back to what's called a relaxed muscle body. When I was taking my training for, that's where the CCTP is For clinical trauma professional, one of the major things the professor was talking about was this relaxed muscle body. And how do we get the client there first so that then we can go into what occurred, what's happening in them? Because if we don't get there to this, you know, balanced state in your nervous system between sympathetic and parasympathetic, then this therapist can potentially cause them more harm. If we're reviewing things of the past while they're in a in this case, the sympathetic nervous system is elevated. So that's the fight or flight one. And for those who don't yeah. know, parasympathetic is like Netflix and chill type of place. <laughs> that's what I say to my clients. Like, listen, you want to be in parasympathetic and and sympathetic and you want to marry the two. Okay. We're not always chilling and hanging out because then we don't care, but we don't want to be in the hypervigilance and think the world is, is against us. It. So um, it's about doing that. How do we do that? Um, there is breath work. There's somatic breathing. There's meditation. I mean, depending on what the client believes in, right? So I think we have people who are strictly scientific. Others believe in energy and spiritualism. So there's different types of energy healing that folks can do. Anything that contributes to bringing the the body back to a homeostasis is important to have a pattern around that or so like uh, habits weekly, daily, so that when you go into therapy and we start talking about, for example, the abuse you know, we're going to get an elevated heart rate, but we're not getting the flashes or we're not sweating or we're not uncontrollably shaking. You know, I don't, I don't want you there because now I'm hurting you. I want it to just be controlled, you know? So I don't know if that, does that answer your question or?
0: It does. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. One of the things that helped me the most, definitely therapy was really, really crucial. And there was an amazing therapist I really connected with at the rehab center who just taught me so much, which I think was the first step. It was like awareness and knowledge. So I learned mm-hmm. so much about what was actually going on. And then the next step was breath work and it has really changed my life. And I realized that my nervous system was completely dysregulated. And when I first analyzed my breath, it was very rapid, very shallow. I realized that I was really stuck in a, dysregulated nervous system in a fight or flight mode. And so as I've grown, you know, deeper into this breath work practice, into other somatic practices, even dance and different movements, it has expedited my my healing journey. It's been really, really powerful for me when those things come up, even the deep breath work journeys, releasing a lot of the emotions that lied around that traumatic experience and the things that happened in my life before. So I yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's from my personal experience exactly, you know, what, what has been helpful to me as well.
1: Yeah, I often, you know, when I describe it to clients, it's like, you know, if we're coming in, we're already in a trauma diagnosis or state. Since the nervous system is so dysregulated, the sympathetic nervous system is the one in charge, right? It's the one with the bigger muscle. And one of the things we need to do is train the parasympathetic to get stronger. So that's why a lot of these activities are implemented so that even if you're not feeling dysregulated, I want you to practice it. I want you to get that muscle, you know, stronger so that when you are met with stress, like, situations, when you're met with talking about the past trauma, when you're met with all these things, your body has already started to train on how to automatically deescalate. And that's the goal. The goal is that we get to or get presented with stimulus that challenges us, that is by nature elevating us, especially if it's a stimulus in therapy about your trauma that is obviously emotionally rooted with you. And now we have these tools that your body recognizes because we've been practicing them. And we, it's, it's like we're imprinting in your body for it to be automatic. So now instead of the automatic being, oh shit, right? Or all these dysregulated symptoms or outcomes, then what we have is the outcome of the wait, wait, wait. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going in it. I'm going to go talk about it, but I'm coming in from a more controlled place. Um, I think that's really powerful. One of the things that again, we learned in the training, uh, trauma training is that statistically when people know how to self regulate, they are less prone to being traumatized. That's why there are war veterans who come back and they do not have PTSD. And and I work with first responders too. So I've met people who've been in as a first responder, firefighter, veteran, police officer, and there's the folks that are very, very, very affected by the job. And then there's people who've looked up the ranks many years and they're not. I mean, they go through the same things, they're exposed to the same things, but their coping mechanisms and their skills are sharpened. And and the way that they balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic is very distinct. So now you see how it does work, you know, over 15, 20 years of being of service. And it makes a difference. Do you think
0: that a lot of that has to do with how we were raised, our childhood?
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. The childhood and what you were exposed to in your childhood, right? So it may not have been your parent, but you may have had a mentor. You may have had a grandparent, someone, someone's mom or dad that poured into you. It's nature versus nurture too. So yes, it's how we were brought up. And then it's also what we're exposed to. And then how much are we aware that we're exposed to it? So now speak from personal experience. I think I was exposed to a lot of different things that at some point I didn't know were there because I didn't know how to recognize them. You know, growing up, when I looked in retrospect, it was like, oh, that was there. But because my parents didn't know any better and they couldn't necessarily lead me to the fountain that was across the street that would have helped, I didn't know to go to it. And I didn't know to go to it at 25. I was just, Mm. um, I guess you would say either, I don't know if it's naive or ignorant to it. I I wasn't informed. And so when I, that's why I always say awareness is key and and awareness is like literally just noticing the room you're in, like the mindfulness of being present so that you can really take in what's there. It's a mix of things. Some parents do a really good job of creating awareness you know, I, for one, because I've learned all these things, I'm always making sure there's a consciousness with my children, you know, because maybe it's not even me, maybe it's someone else coming into our lives that can teach them something. If I don't teach them the consciousness and awareness, it, it'll pass them. So yeah, I think, I think it's all very relative. Some of us grow up with, you know, parents who have great skills, right? They've, they've done some work and, and some of us have parents who are very limited. And then that's, you know, the difference in journeys too.
0: Many of us live life disconnected from our bodies, feeling out of control and reactive. We lose control of our emotions, scream at our children, the dog, our partners. This affects our lives negatively. It hurts our relationships and ultimately it hurts us. Breathwork has been one of the most powerful rituals that I've developed in building a better relationship with myself, my body, and my emotions. Through breathwork, I'm able to move from a reactive state to a proactive state and this has positively changed my life my relationships my health my career and ultimately led me on a healing journey so that's why i'm so excited to announce the launch of my new platform ray rituals a membership community that offers on-demand breathwork practices that you can integrate into your everyday life to energize balance and relax your mind and body while supporting you in healing. Through Ray Rituals, you can build a breathwork practice where you instinctually start to come back to your body and are able to process your emotions and release them. It's an unlearning of what the world has taught you, to push your feelings down, to distract yourself and keep going, but instead to pause, to breathe, feel, and move. It's simple, it's quick, and it's effective. Join me And sign up for Ray Rituals now at rayrituals.com. It's time to take your power back, one breath at a time. Why did trauma become your life's mission? Why did you become so passionate about helping people through trauma?
1: I'll start by saying my parents did the best they could with the knowledge they had. But I did grow up in a home that was chaotic as far as they were together, but there was a lot of argument. For a child and for a teen, it was a high anxiety place. I was on alert a lot because I didn't know when the next fight was. I didn't know if I could actually really, am I really, you know, hanging out in my room, chilling, watching TV, or am I going to hear something in the living room? As I got older, I was more exposed and aware of what they were arguing about, and, and it really affected me more. And I wanted to placate. I wanted to just bring the peace back. So, with time, I started getting in the way of those arguments in the middle of them too. And there was never any physical violence, but verbal was definitely there. And that still, you know, that still marks you. I started journaling between 12 and 15. I didn't even know journaling was a thing. It was more of a writing, your diary. I started journaling and I would talk about my feelings. Um, I would write uh, music and poetry, so like lyrics and things. There was always an outlet for me. And as I studied myself through those outlets, right, reading it back to myself. I realized that there were some tools there to regulate or I felt better. I didn't know any, you know, I didn't know the terms was like, I felt better when I did this. Then I kept focused, you know, in school, college, et cetera. And I built boundaries. So I knew that I couldn't study at home. I couldn't do certain things at home. So I do them outside. I think I was still sharp enough to be like, well, I don't want to go and become broke and leave the house. So they pay for the rent and stuff. Well, I'll do that. I'll stay. But emotionally, I'm going to go take care of myself somewhere else. I'm going to continue to grow myself and my degree you know, at the college library. And knowing the process that I had to go through to thrive within a chaotic environment, and then I get exposed to psychology and healthcare in college. I started to realize that there was a niche for me there, again, in that restoration. So now I have all these terms, but I didn't have those terms back then. Mm -hmm. I just knew that the brain made sense to me. I like the brain and the gray areas of the brain and the, it's kind of like an exploration, excavation of those pieces of, you know, of a person. And when they come to you and they're somewhat shattered and over time, I realized I was good at that because I did that for myself. I, I could have been a replica of what I saw, or I could have been resilient and changed the patterns and worked on my own trauma, and not repeated them. And so it was possible for me not to be like them and evolve, then others can do the same, you know, given that we go through XYZ steps, right? That's why I'm so passionate about it, because I don't think there's anyone on this earth that has not been through something. I mean, life is about challenge, there's pain, there's loss. And if we become stronger, just smarter, and stronger in the sense of being able to thrive, even in pain, because pain is part of life, then we would live better lives. We would live more fulfilled. We we wouldn't shy away necessarily from failure because we understood it was part of the process and our self-esteem and our, our confidence would be better because we understood it. It did not define us that we got an F on that test. It doesn't define us that we were in this wrong relationship. It was a choice. Maybe it was wrong. We were, you know, naive, but now we know better and we can do better. And in, in having I feel like having people who walk this earth that understand that pain and mistakes are just a given and we can move on from that and continue to create, right? To to recreate ourselves would be so cool. So so that's kind of like what I do.
0: And it's so true. Part of the human experience and, and the gift actually of being a human is having these mistakes and hardships and lows and highs. But thank you so much for sharing your story and how you arrived at this beautiful mission and work that you do. An amazing journey that I love you know when people are able to take their experiences and their hardships and, and really turn it into to their passion their life's work
1: I think the cool part is at least for me I like human beings okay I know some folks are like oh I don't like people I'm like I do I like people and I think there's a good in all of us and yes it includes everyone and I get excited I get excited about someone saying hey I didn't I didn't feel the same today as I done as I've felt the last 3 months, right or mm-hmm. I can see the possibilities of things now where they had no hope before. I genuinely become happy knowing that people, you know, who didn't see a, a bright day in a while and now start to see the even the possibility of it and, and that they can now have they can have the human experience, they can have life and actually live it instead of feeling like this one thing that occurred to me for example is just it did me in and that's it. Like my life has no meaning.
0: So that actually yeah. brings me to my next question, which is how can trauma impact a person's understanding of their identity?
1: Uh, 100% can impact everything. Identity is, you know, developed as you're growing up and what do you like what you don't like, where you belong, where you don't belong, you know, all these things that make up you, your values. When you are exposed to a traumatic event, often you are forced, if you're going to survive, you're forced to adjust, alter, change your identity. You can't always be you because if you are you, a lot of the times that's frowned upon. That happens with parents. It happens in, you know, romantic relationships, sometimes in work environments. You know, a lot of people who come from a third world country, they're coming into the U.S. They get the job, whatever they can, right? They've got to make a living. They can't really be them. They have to do what you got to do to make the money. And that over time compromises your your essence, which then over time leads you to feeling very unhappy with yourself. Because there's this mask you wear or there's this pretend you have to play or you're even worse. Sometimes you're led to believe that who you want to be and the things you want to do are wrong. They're not acceptable. Take someone's sexual identity, which is a lot more open now, but it was an issue and it's been an issue for a long time. And over time, that identity gets compromised. So a lot of the times what I do with clients is talking about that identity and how do we reclaim that? reclaim it, restore it, so that we can live aligned with the things that align with us. And if we're not aligned with our values and our morals, our beliefs, then everything around us is incongruent, which will never lead us to joy or contentment. So, you know, within, to answer your question, I think it's everything. Identity is one, of, if not the one thing, one of the first things that gets compromised with trauma, especially with folks that are very resilient. You have top CEOs who are very successful and they don't really know who they are. They just know how their role defines them. And it's two separate things because you, you're you still you despite what you do. If we took someone's title away, a lot of us have put our identity in there.
0: I think it's a lifelong <laughs> quest to figure out who you are. And as you said, it's constantly changing. So when we mm-hmm. cling to certain things, it can be detrimental when we lose those things. You know? Yes. Like a job, because you ask somebody, who are you? And the first thing they'll say is their job. But is that really who you are? Right. No. Right?
1: What I do for a living or what I practice is one thing, but who I am as a person is a whole other definition.
0: Yeah. Practicing non-attachment to identity is a really powerful practice. and something that has helped me a lot too. In my sober journey, after I got sober, I feel like I had no idea who I was. And I tried on many hats as well. I'm somebody that has worn a lot of masks in my life, actually. And throughout my whole life, I wore different masks around different people. I think even just having moved from Mexico to the U.S. when I was young, there was a certain point where I didn't really feel accepted in Mexico and I didn't really feel accepted here. And so I would act a certain mm-hmm. way there, act a certain way here, act a certain way around certain parents. My mom's American, my dad's Mexican. So mm-hmm. I sort of learned to play so many different parts that I was really good at just wearing a lot of different masks. And at the end of the day, I lost really who I was and I didn't really know. You said it, it ends up really hurting me and I felt so just like lost and confused. And when I would drink, that's when I felt like I was most me. I would turn into kind of a crazy person though, because it was like, she was screaming to come out.
1: <laughs> right. So that's her out because she can only play for how many hours we are at this party. Yeah. And then we got to go back to reality, whatever, which is not really reality, right? But it's the reality we've placed ourselves in because we must continue to embody this mask or, you know, this, this costume. If we have time for an example, I yeah. i have told, um I made this, this analogy with a client once and I said to them, if you don't know what you bring to the table, You know, essentially knowing, right, you and knowing you at whatever phase, you know, you're in. If you don't know what you bring to the table, then you don't know who deserves to sit at your table. I said to her, imagine she's younger. She's like 19, 20. So I was like, imagine this. You go to a party and it's a potluck. Everyone's asked to bring something in. You're running late. You don't get a chance to bring anything in. So you walk in and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late, whatever. Oh, no problem. We have some chips and chicken and dip over there. You know, you can have some of that. Well, you know, a few folks, right? Some people brought the chicken, some people brought the chips and the dip, whatever. Everyone brought something to the table. You forgot, which is fine. People will share. Then you start meeting people at the party, right? And everyone's like, oh, I love this chicken. Oh, I love the, you know, the potatoes. I love the dips, whatever. And you're now commenting and trying what's at the table that you didn't bring. And you're just kind of, um, I guess, acclimating to what's there, but there's nothing really yours there. And so when you look around to the relationships you formed in this space, they were all based on what other people brought and not what you brought. And I remember our discussion was about, you know, how do I know who can sit at my table or not? Or, you know, how do I pick this, you know, circle, inner circle of people? So I said to her, well, imagine it was different. Imagine that you had brought pasta. You brought your lasagna or whatever you made. Everyone now gets a taste of that lasagna too. You know, so everyone's kind of having chicken potatoes or chips and dip and then, and the pasta. And someone comes up to you and says, Hey, you know, so and so, did you make this pasta? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, my God, I love it. See, now it's a little different because now you're also recognizing someone that is interested in getting to know you. They, they, they were drawn to something you brought to the table. So there's a connection. There's a difference in connection there than when we're just kind of floating around eating other people's chips and chicken. Knowing your essence, even if it's an evolved version, right? You're always evolving. But knowing what you bring to the table makes everything in your life congruent. It's like, if I were to give you a contract of me, what are you really signing? You know, what am I giving you? What are you signing up for? That's knowing when we make everything congruent, right, people, careers, um, or missions, the way we see ourselves in the mirror, right, emotionally, mentally, physically, then ultimately, you're in a happier place, right? You're in a more content, fulfilled place. because everything just everything's right, right? The chairs go with the table in the living room, like, it, it could take us time to get there. So I know I make it sound, oh, it's like, so simple. Yeah,
0: yeah because somebody I, might say, well, I don't
1: know what to bring to the table. Right. Well, and the, the thing is, we already bring something. We just haven't identified it because we already are, right? We're already living. So I'll ask someone the question of like, well, if I had you as a friend, Christina, what do I get? If I had you as a friend, what do I get as a friend? And you're going to say, well, I'm loyal. I'm very honest. You start naming your qualities. Well, you already started telling me who you are. You're an honest, you're a loyal friend. You're accountable, and then so we start a discussion. If they don't have a list, right? So a lot of my my younger clients, they really don't know. Yeah. So let's let's start a list on what you know your friend Mary gets when she hangs out with Christina. Well, she gets this. Well, if Mary was in a jam, what would you do? Oh, I would do that. You know, here we start defining how you would respond to trouble, right? Or how you respond to that friend, so we can see your characteristic, your traits. What don't you do well, right? So oh, if, if there's an emergency, blah, blah blah, I'm more likely to run away. Okay. So now we know that in case of an emergency, I mean, if you're cool with it, but you, you kind of flee. So what does that really say about you, let's say, in relationships or do you like that?
0: Yes, just the, getting to know yourself again or mm-hmm, for the first time, maybe sometimes.
1: Especially after trauma, you're getting to know yourself again. You're still you, but you're never 100% the same prior to the incident or the or the years of trauma.
0: I do think there's something important, too, about spending time alone. For me, there was a deep, uncomfortable feeling with being alone. So I definitely used to surround myself with a lot of people because I really didn't like myself. So I would feel really uncomfortable alone. So I, I would sit alone and it would bring up lots of thoughts and anxiety. And I didn't know what to do with myself, especially because I used to, in those moments, I would you know, take some wine and watch a show. And so I made a practice of just sitting in the uncomfortableness and getting to know myself again. And that would, I started, I painted a little bit. I started drawing exploring different things and trying things. I think you have to just try, try some new Mm -hmm. things, you know, and see what you actually like. As you said, like we are so influenced sometimes also by other people, by our parents, Mm -hmm. by media, by everything that's like at the end of the day, you're left wondering who actually am I, is you know, and what do I actually enjoy doing? And how do I sit with myself and actually start to like love? How do I start on this self-love journey? Which is actually one of the the next questions I was going to ask you, which is How has your self love journey been, and how does self love play a role in healing trauma?
1: Well, we'll quote my website because I did come up with this. You know, I, I have there self love is the number one ingredient to healing because so again awareness, right? Getting to know ourselves, identity, all these factors are there, and if we don't know how to nourish them, how to take care of them, how to love on them, we're not going to be successful at giving to others or even, you know, teaching others how to give to us, right? Because the way we treat ourselves is how others will then know if they have permission to do or not to do things. I got separated into my divorce. It's been about three years. I really had to start number one with getting to know me again, like the me that I feel was, I guess, set free, but it's not that he had me you know, in chains, I had put myself in chains over time as well by not being me for fear of X, Y, Z. And so getting to know that, then after getting to know that it's like, okay, I really like this person. How do I cultivate these qualities? And and who is attracted to these qualities, like which part of my friendship groups, because there was a lot of people that I did know, not everyone was there for the right reason. And not everyone was someone that I could really feel comfortable with. And in reality, most people weren't. And so starting to define the associations also made it's leading me into having time with myself and embracing like exactly what you said, the uncomfortability. I'm going to sit and have a beer and have pizza and watch Netflix and know I don't need anyone here <laughs> because I've often defined myself as, I am an extrovert. I know I am, but I don't always need to be in an extrovert situation. That's somewhat exhausting. And I realized that I looked for connection in people, which again, not wrong, but I looked for it all the time so I can maintain this high. And the high is great, but when you're in the high 24-7, welcome to fight or flight, right? Welcome to hypervigilance in some sort of way. So I had to be okay. I had to bring peace the thing I always wanted is not the thing I knew how to create because that's not what I was taught. I, I knew I wanted it. So I diffuse things, right? I keep the peace by managing the outcome and avoiding problems. And in reality, I cause more internally. So learning how to really just embrace what I liked and telling those around me, this is what I like, what I don't like. And then proceeding to cut out, you know, kind of like when you're eating, when you're eating bad, <laughs> cut out mm-hmm. the bad foods and the the toxic ones doing that. I mean, it's a lot of steps. Eventually you reach a place where you're home with yourself. And so the folks around you now or the people that are attracted to you now are very congruent and you feel good with them. You go have a conversation. It's refreshing, right? No one's putting on a mask. Everyone's just being, and now it's, we're on a a journey of evolution versus keeping some sort of um, status or whatnot.
0: Thank you so much for for sharing that. Self-love journey is a lifelong journey. So I have one more question for you which is how, or have you experienced a spiritual awakening? And yeah, I mean, many of us have experienced many, many spiritual awakenings, but perhaps, Mm -hmm. yeah, just one you would like to share with us.
1: We'll start here. I think maybe I cheated on this one because I've been very spiritual since I was young. And so one of the things my parents did teach me is spirituality. I think one of the most significant ones is when I realized, and how do I state this? So upon my separation, three years ago, there was an awakening of my personal spirit, of my spirit and how that was coming to life again. It was like it was born again based on the place I had been in this trap that I, you know, maybe it was there and maybe I contributed to it either way, spiritually as well, to where there was a freedom. It's kind of like I could now soar without the heaviness on my spirit of all these other things. And for me, it was like, wow, this is what my intuition's been telling me. This is what internal peace looks like, even in a, you know, even not just your brain, not just the science, but spiritually at peace with you. And this is like coming home to yourself. I don't know that if that explains it, but for me, it was like, I'm here. Okay, now this is the real essence that really just started three years ago. Wow. In That's my beautiful.
0: 30s. <laughs> it's never too late, guys. <laughs> Best time of life, the 30s. I'm here with you. Cheers. Well, where can... <laughs> People find you? Where can people connect, work with you?
1: So, I did everything as I was taught, right? Everything's named the same. So, the practice name is National Therapeutic Alliance. So, you can find the website as nationaltherapeuticalliance.com. Uh, our Instagram handle and Facebook handle are same as uh, National Therapeutic Alliance. And if you'd rather chat, text, get a little bit more of an intimate approach, our phone number is 954 570 1332.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Connect with Margarita. Margarita. <laughs> hey,
1: Mr. Spanish. Spanish. Margarita. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this powerful conversation and all of your wisdom on trauma. I am excited to connect further and for everyone to tune in to this amazing episode to connect with you.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime that I have an opportunity to share and to bring awareness to others, um, it's amazing. So thank you for the time.
0: I'm Christina Ray, and you've been listening to the Power for Good Podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And join me next week for another powerful conversation. Share a story of how you are using your power for good by sending me a DM on my Instagram at Christina Almeida. I'll be sharing your stories at the end of every episode weekly. If you're interested in learning more on how we can work together, head to my website, IamChristinaRay.com and let's connect. Sending you so much love and remember you are powerful.